Welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco Sunday Morning Worship Service Podcast. For more information or downloads of previous audio services, go to uusf.org. While you're there, check out our monthly newsletter, Weekly Flame, and much, much more. Francesco Petrarca, more commonly known as Petrarch in this part of the world, was born in 1304 in Arezzo, Italy. His father was a friend of Dante's. His father was a notary who insisted that his sons follow in his footsteps and study the law. But Francesco, it turns out, was far more interested in literature. So when his father died in 1326, the young man left behind his legal studies in Bologna and took minor ecclesiastical orders of the church. It was in the midst of this chapter of his life while in southern France that he decides one day that he wishes to climb a mountain. He wants to climb it, he says, simply to see the view. It's April 26th. 1336, and Petrarch is 31. The mountain is 1,900 feet high, and he talks his brother into scaling it with him. The two set off, with two servants, to begin the arduous but supported and rocky journey up the mountain. They meet one person along the way, a shepherd, who tells them that he once also attempted the climb, and it's hard, and the view is really hardly worth all the effort, but this only makes the young Petrarch want it more, he says. The whole way up, Francesco seeks the easier route, regularly splitting off from his brother and the servants to try what appears like it might be a slightly more gradual way, but always, he says, finding himself scaling an even steeper and tougher way to their next landmark meeting point, and always arriving to these places more tired than his companions who took each challenge just as it came to them. Like a good pilgrimage, even the journey is teaching him lessons. He will detail the day in a letter to his former confessor, an Augustinian monk. Always you take the easy path or try, the mountain seems to say to him, but to no great avail, huh? Eventually, reaching the top, the party takes in the extraordinary view, more breathtaking than the shepherd led them to believe. And there's no doubt that the sense at the height of perspective in every direction, literal and figurative perspective on the world, but also on themselves and life that it seeps into at least Francesco in this moment. 
In fact, while standing there, he remembers that it was actually this day, almost to the day, exactly 10 years ago, that he left his legal studies behind. 10 years since his father died and he followed his own heart and it sets him wondering and reflecting on how far he has come and how far he has yet to go in a life that will add up to something he can be proud of. There at the mountaintop, he takes stock. He writes, I rejoiced at my progress, I mourned my weaknesses, and I, <laughs> I commiserated the universal instability of human conduct. He remembers, too, that the same spiritual confessor, the one to whom he will write the letter detailing the events of the day, that this man had given him a copy of a book, and that Francesco carried the book with him up the mountain. The book, because the man was an Augustinian monk, I suppose, is St. Augustine's Confessions. Francesco decides he's going to throw the book open and read what's there in a moment of devotional practice and surrender before he returns back down the mountain. Augustine himself, for those of you who know the story, had thrown open a book in a similar moment of wrestling and questioning, and in doing so, found an answer that changed his life. This knowledge is no doubt layered into Petrarch's own decision and into this moment. As he opens the book, and finds and reads there the following passage. And men go out to wonder at the heights of mountains, and the mighty waves of the sea, and the wide sweeps of rivers, and the circuit of the ocean, and the revolution of the stars, but themselves they consider not. passage hits Petrarch in the solar plexus. To you or to me, maybe, it wouldn't mean so much, but for him it cuts deep. He immediately falls mute and starts down the mountain. Not a syllable fell from my lips, he writes, until we reached the bottom again. These words had given me occupation enough for I could not believe that it was by a mere accident that I happened upon them. What I had read there I believed to be addressed to me and to no other, remembering that St. Augustine had once suspected the same thing in his own case. What exactly Francesco Petrarca thought on the way down the mountain, what his companions thought of his sudden silence is only partially detailed in the letter that he leaves behind, but the moment changes him. It answers some question it offers some direction that he perceives and lives into 
with noticeable results. Less caught up in travel and things of the world, deeper going inward in his work of scholarship and creative engagements, there is now from then on an uptick in his work, his public life launched with volumes of poetry. Indeed, Petrarch's life would yield extraordinary fruits. He's credited, as many of you may know, by being the creator of the structure of the sonnet and one of its most gifted poets with the discovery or rediscovery of the letters of Cicero that's credited with launching the 14th century Italian Renaissance. As a man both pagan and Christian in his practices, he's widely considered the founder of Renaissance humanism a man who fought to rekindle an interest in classical teachings. He wanted to reconcile them with Christianity and invite reason back into the public discourse in a new way. And he's shaped by this pivotal experience he would know and name as a religious one of the mountaintop variety. Mountaintop experiences are certainly one variety of religious experience, as William James would call it. Maslow would call them peak experiences, heights of inspiration and revelation, the ecstasy moments of religious life. But there were experiences that came quietly, that come quietly and less dramatically what Maslow would call plateaus, moments of deep knowing, expansive oceanic moments of connection with all of humankind, a kind of self melting into the unity and love and indivisibility of all. And there are the valley experiences too, the dark nights of the soul, the pain and broken-hearted moments like what Sam talked about this morning. And the knowing and the deepening that comes in time from those places too, out of them. All this and more is this vast category we call religious experiences that runs this insane gamut from visions and voices and burning bushes and risen Christs greeting apostles on the road to vast emptiness and the loss of self that Elizabeth Gilbert and Buddhist masters and others describe to things as simple and everyday as holding a baby or a loved one's hand and having a moment of knowing descend, a knowing that is beyond reason or description, knowing that all will be well, maybe, or that love is never lost, maybe, or that we're connected in ways that defy words, maybe, or that death doesn't scare us anymore, maybe. 
or a thousand epiphanies that drop in like rain and baptize us into some transformed and new way of thinking about ourselves or our relationship to others and the world or where and how we are called. Because these experiences change us, affect us, transform us in ways small and revolutionary, they are key to who we are and our stories of how we came to this way of being. And sharing them with those with whom we are in this journey of meaning-making is also key. What this means, of course, is that there is this core respect that we offer one another, a curiosity that's not about interrogation ever, but this desire to connect and hear one another's stories. Yesterday, in our Spirit Saturday, the course that I led opened with a chance for folks to share their spiritual and religious experiences, however they would have defined that. And in my little group of three people, I ate up with a spoon what was shared. And literally my only sadness from the day was that I couldn't sit in each of those groups and hear the stories that were shared in them. How I love and hunger for hearing what has fed the deepest commitments that we all have and what these moments of transformation look like and what we know to be true and when we knew it and how. It's actually all of that that I think drew me most into this profession, the, the mystery and the reality of how it is we come to be more deeply, wisely human, and how to make space for that. It is also what I realized then we actually need to make space and intention around these moments. Some, of course, come to us like a surprise and uninvited guest, right? You think you're walking your dog, for instance, in some last chore of the night, as I was not so long ago in a street behind my house. And suddenly you are aware of how gorgeous and quiet the night is and how ridiculously lucky you are to be alive and to breathe and to look at the starry sky and how, how too, this animal that walks beside you whose collar jingles with her name tag and proof that she's had her rabies vaccine, how she'll someday not be here beside you and you know it, but she doesn't. At least you don't think she does. And then how you too are going to vanish from this street, a memory pressed into the pavement. And how in the midst of all of it, all we can do is try to be present and alive to the fullness of it, of this, 
That's it. But that's enough. And then as quickly as you are sucked into deep time without warning, you realize it's time to get out your plastic bag and pick up after this jingle-collared dog. Sometimes experiences that break us open to wisdom and reorder our spirit a little, they just come in uninvited, right? And other times, though, you and I, we, we try to make space for them, if we're wise, right? We, we throw open doors, and, well, and it's like we light candles in the window, like you do in Diwali in India, so that Lakshmi, when she's wandering back home, will see the lights and come into your home and offer you prosperity of the largest kind of spirit and health and peace for the year. For our part, we do that, right, if we're wise. We, we do whatever we can to make space for these moments. Whatever practices that keep us open and awake and watchful, we make time to sit quietly and to read contemplatively and to go on pilgrimages, small or large, and to sit in inspiring places and sacred groves where trees are ancient and stand like gods, or we hold our vigil at a hospital bed. We tend our gardens. We live formally and informally into practices that say, I am open, wide open to wisdom and love and transformation. And we cross our fingers. And if we're lucky, we get to share some of the life and mystery that meets us along these roads and learn and deepen from one another. After coming down from the mountain, Francesco wrote the details to his friend, and then he asked the father to pray for him. He said, pray that these vague and wandering thoughts of mine may sometime come firmly fixed and after having been vainly tossed from one interest to another, may direct themselves at last toward the single, true, certain, and everlasting good. So may it be for us all. And our experiences of wisdom and knowing and clarity guide us along the way. Thanks for listening to this podcast of the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco Sunday Morning Worship Service. For more information or downloads of previous audio services, go to uusf.org.